Hello and welcome to the final episode of Season 1 of the Tea Room Talks podcast, the podcast breaking the stigma. Thank you for joining me and listening in for another week. With this being the final episode, we have a deep and interesting chat today with Luke, who works within the gambling industry. A tough and sometimes controversial industry, but it is a popular industry. Luke contacted the podcast and chatted to me about how he is a regular listener and wished to share his own experiences, which obviously is fantastic. I've known Luke for many years due to us going to the same secondary school together, so it's interesting to catch up to see where our paths have joined again. So within this episode, there are many things we discuss, such as Luke's own struggle and path with depression, alcohol and addictions. We also look at life when dealing with depression and how it feels to try and act normal and and do the everyday tasks. With the betting industry, we look into the stories that come with working in a betting shop, spotting the signs, behaviours, patterns of people struggling with mental health and often the addiction to gambling. Finally, we review what systems are in place to help combat the addictions there and specifically gambling, what organisations and work procedures are in place for the betting industry to help the person. Let's take a listen to the chat that I had with Luke. So I'm joined by Luke Osborne, Deputy Manager within the game and betting industry. Luke, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, mate. It's a pleasure for coming on. Thank you very much. So in regards to your own personal mental health, please tell us about your past experiences that you've had with it. Uh, so it's it's difficult to put like a timestamp on when it first started because I mean I had a fairly easygoing childhood. I mean we went to the same schools together, and I felt like at school I was fine. Like I wasn't overly popular. I wasn't like on my own sort of thing. But for me, my earliest memories of really struggling was when I got to um, college level. I did a sports degree at Cambridge Regional, and I'd done three years worth of work. And within the last six months of it, I just found myself like not wanting to go and like I was struggling to get motivated. My work was slipping. Like I wasn't my usual bubbly self. Like I'm quite a loud expression of person as it was. But I'd find I'd just sit in the lessons and just be like, oh, do you know what, I'm done with this now. And um, my, my tutor noticed it actually and he pulled me aside one day and was like, uh, is everything all right? And I think like as someone that's still struggling to understand what really went wrong I was like yeah I'm fine I'm just tired you know I'm growing up a little bit I've got work going on I've got relationships outside of college but yeah and then just one day I I remember it like it was yesterday I was laying in bed and I physically could not get out of bed like in my mind I'd sat up I'd got my clothes on but I just laid in bed my phone was ringing it was like the tutor was ringing me my friend Jamie was ringing me other friends were ringing me dad was ringing me I just couldn't answer the phone I couldn't dad obviously comes upstairs like what are you doing like I've been trying to ring you where have you been I was just I didn't feel well today and that was like the easy get out card like I just don't feel well you know I've got a funny tummy and that one day turned into two turned into three and then before you realise I'd had three weeks off of college so the tutor rung me and I answered the phone and he was like oh glad you're alive sort of thing like jokingly and I was a bit like haha yeah I've just you know I've been I, I think I might even have like told a line, but like, oh, I've had like family issues going on because a I didn't understand what was going on, and b I was quite embarrassed by it. Like, being this big bubbly personality, not wanting to like, it sounds really gross, but like I wasn't even showering. Like, 
everything just completely stopped because my mind couldn't focus on anything. Like I remember trying to clean my teeth and not understanding how I couldn't get the toothpaste out because there was a seal on it and I just couldn't work out why the seal was there. Yeah. So I'm stood in the mirror like in floods of tears and then I get the knock on the door. Are you all right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just in the toilet. I'll be out in a minute. And I just said to my... And I then sort of sat and thought about it and I just thought, I can't go to college anymore. Like, I need to quit. And I had about six weeks left to pass all my exams. Like, I was on merits and distinctions, a few passes every now and again, but I was on track to getting a really good lot of outlook on it and I just emailed in said I need to quit and he was like are you joking me and I just honestly tell I just could not face going into college and it, it was it was like almost like that was it I was done I just couldn't do anything yeah you know from my point of view that just sounds like a a complete mental mm. breakdown yeah. like a complete just shock to the system yeah. and you know you say about not showering but I, I totally relate to that because with myself when I first had the instance of um, the realisation that I can't go to work. For me, it started with a week off, two weeks. I yeah. think it ended up being about three months. Yeah. And I didn't eat for 10 days. Mm. Um, I showered, but barely, because I I found that like my isolation was just getting smaller and smaller. If I was in my bedroom, I was safe. As soon as I opened the door, I almost felt like I don't, I don't want to yeah, face no, the rest I can, of it. I completely, I, you know, I, I cannot stress like how similar that was to me. I remember like I would wait for everybody. So I know that everyone's gone out the house because at the time, uh, my dad's business had an accountant who would come over in the mornings. I think it was like a Tuesday and Wednesday so I'd wait for her to leave before I go down and have my breakfast. I remember one day I went downstairs, you know, pulled my cereal out, went to the fridge. There's no milk, and I just absolutely lost the plot. Like I, I, the bowl went across the room. <laughs> I was like screaming in anger, and like looking back now, I can clearly see that that was a sign of like, right, I need help because I'm usually like calm and collected, and just every little thing would set me off. Like I would. I'd, I'd miss being home at a certain time for to watch my favourite programme on telly and I would just be absolutely fuming. Like, yeah. having banter with friends and they'd say one thing that I didn't take the right way and I would just want to kill them. Like, my I couldn't give, like, a genuine reason for anything. Like, the irrationality of it just went out the window and I would just explode into, like, fits of rage, fits of sadness, fits of laughter. And like, I can, looking back now, I can clearly see that I needed like a serious intervention like I needed serious help because it was only ever going to go one way and that was you know with potentially taking my own life like there was times where I definitely thought about it yeah like sitting at home on my own thinking well like no one else knows where I am so if I just got in my car now and drove off turn my phone off like who's really going to miss me do you know what I mean it's it's a really it's a really negative way of thinking, but at that moment in time, and I'm sure yourself or maybe some listeners can agree that like that's all they can think of. Yeah, I mean, certainly my example, you know, it wasn't initially what happened, but it was after the weeks of dealing with those emotions that the thoughts creep in where you think, if I can't deal with this, then I don't want anyone else to have yeah, to exactly. try and deal with it. And people often forget that with with things like anxiety and depression you know there are other apart from feelings of generally being low um, fatigue tiredness um, insomnia not being able to sleep there are often other aspects at play you know the ones that are quite keen for for me that if I it's the same as being stressed but certainly with depression big key factor that I find is 
quick to anger, very short patience naturally, but also um, indecisiveness. I, If I'm having a very low stage, I'll find that even the simplest decisions I can't actually make because mm. I'm not happy. So it doesn't matter what I have or do. I can't make a decision because yeah. it's not going to impact my happiness. And it sounds so bizarre, but I know when I'm stressed and I'm feeling that way because even simple tasks like um, my girlfriend would say, what do you want for dinner tonight? I, I just can't decide. Yeah. I just don't know yeah. what I want because I'm not even thinking about it. And even if I want, do I want this or do I want, neither make me happy. And it, yeah. I know it's just food, but neither make me happy. Yeah. So my mind isn't focused on that and I can't decide what time to do a job tomorrow I can't decide how best to drive or take a certain route somewhere and it's almost like my brain is in uh, a lockdown sort of status where I can't I can't decide on my next move until I deal with the immediate you know sort of calming down de-stressing trying to get out of this low zone before I take back to what I enjoy out of life you know and I'm certainly in your example where you haven't been able to get out of bed that's a simple mundane task mm. turns into the hardest uh, it really like, like just getting dressed was impossible the best way I could have ever described it and uh, when I went to therapy they actually use it as an analogy it's like you know in like a a TV show when they have the telly that goes like black and white that you can hear the static yeah that's literally what my brain was like again yeah. you could ask me oh what did you have for breakfast today and I'd just be like uh what uh, uh and I just couldn't tell you I yeah. could sit there for an hour and unless you physically say oh you had toast I'm like yes yes I did and like looking back now I don't understand I would never understand what happened and why I felt that way I understand that like depression is a chemical imbalance but like you look at it and on paper I had everything I had friends family you know I had money in my pocket clothes on my back food in my belly my own car a job like sports I had everything you need to be happy in life but I constantly just felt and for months I just felt like something was missing like you know if you leave the house under you sit and think did I turn the oven off or have I got everything like am I missing something yeah. I was just constantly and that just kept playing and it just kept bigger and bigger and bigger until it just it basically consumed my life yeah definitely and and it starts small you know and it, it does until you address it it does gradually take over I mean I I suffered and still suffer with panic attacks but it, it, it started in a one instance and the first time I had one I had no idea what was going on I was away in Switzerland and I, I, I had no idea what I was doing I was with someone I didn't want to be with yeah. and Thing I wasn't very well anyway, you know. I was I was physically ill, so that didn't help. But my mind wasn't in the right place because I was sort of isolated in a hotel yeah. room, wasn't very well. Now that obviously then progressed because I sort of then ended up thinking for the next four days, what was that feeling? Why did I go all sweaty? Why did I then think about this? Well, it must be the thought I was having. I can't have that thought, otherwise it will generate mm. another. And then I'd start thinking about it and it would generate another and it'd generate another and it would happen over a course of weeks and it just increased to the point where I was like, the thought I would have that would generate that trigger would change. Yeah, and then I'd Exactly. Uh, I think the worst, you know, subjects it began with were then just the most mundane thing where I would just have a full meltdown over something so pointless. Mm. And like yourself, I just thought, this is ridiculous. I can't carry on a normal life without addressing it. So naturally, this episode, we're talking about bad habits and distractions. 
it's it's really easy with mental health and mental ill health you know to distract yourself distractions are a good thing you know yeah. it can be sports it can be you know socializing whatever it might be that you're into but also you do have the bad habits and the negative distractions that can take you away from your suffering or your your poor mental health it's easy to ignore or bury the subject of it and I've certainly suffered with it. Have you found yourself, you know, burying your problems and, and yeah, getting into distractions? Yeah, massively. Um, so when I when I quit college, I remember saying to myself, I was like, I like, you know, maybe I'm just a bit burnt out. Like I was college three days a week, working four. Like I didn't have time off. And if I did have time off, it would be studying and trying to see friends. So I just felt like oh, I'm a little bit burnt out. So, you know, I'll take a couple of weeks off. And uh, at the time, my mother's mum was living just outside of Valencia in Spain so I, I said to dad I said dad can you just get me a flight out there and I want two weeks away and um, I'd been to the doctor at this point and they prescribed me uh, sleeping tablets because like you said like an effect of what I was going through was I just couldn't switch off so I started taking these sleeping tablets and I felt like I was like oh I can finally sleep but then with that when I came off them when I came home I was like, I can't sleep, like, I need these tablets. And before you knew it, I was taking, like, sleeping tablets. And then when they're not doing it, I'm taking, like, pain medication because cause I can't sleep. I'm, ugh, like, my body aches, my head hurts. And, like, I think at one stage, like, you know you can get the boxes of Neurofen tablets? Yeah. I'd go through, like, one of them in, in a day and a half. And uh, I got found out, thankfully, I think, because, I mean, it's a, it's a severe addiction. And, like, yeah. if you overdose on them... You, could potentially die yeah and um my car broke down uh i touched i touched wood on this and i thanked my lucky stars for this and i phoned my uh friend in tears and i was like i don't know where i am and she's like what do you mean you, you you're on your way home like you said yeah but i don't know where i am right describe what you can see and i somehow i think i pinged my own um, whatsapp location and uh, she's like oh is there anything that you need and i was like oh, i just need my wallet out of my glove box and you open my glove box and there is like 50 boxes of painkillers and she took one of them and was like what the hell are you doing and I was like oh that's nothing like they're not even from like typical denial and I was like oh they're not for me and then um, I sent myself to the doctors and he was like yeah you have like a severe addiction to painkillers like and it's not even like if you carry on you'll be dead in six months Yeah. and then with that I then was like well if I can't take them what do you see in the movies alcohol yeah. so you know I'll go to the shop in the morning and buy started off with, like the little shop bottles of vodka and stuff like this and uh so it just progressed and progressed and progressed and before you know it i'm texting i text yourself like, oh do you fancy going out for a drink tonight yeah go on i'll come down for one or right, i'll meet you at eight i'm not there at eight i'm there at six and i'm slamming seven eight nine in there and you come and you're like how many of you had oh, i've had a couple you know it's been a long day where in reality i've done nothing but just drink and it really became to the point where i was like making myself broke with just spending it all on alcohol and I just remember feeling one day like this is going to kill me like this is I'm gonna die and I went back to the doctors and I just said look I need serious help here and that's when they then were like right you need to tell your parents what's going on I mean my parents are divorced but I was living with my dad and I sort of went home and I said dad can I talk to you I said I think I'm becoming an alcoholic you just laughed at me I was like I have a serious problem and I think he could see the look on on his son's face and was like okay like tell me what's going on and I just completely broke down I told him everything 
and obviously he was angry because he was like, I'm your dad, you're supposed to talk to me about these things. But after previous experience of trying to tell him that I was struggling and being like laughed off because like yourself, like my dad's in the building industry and a lot of that, as I'm sure you've discovered, is mental health just doesn't exist, especially among men. Like, like you're just you're having a bad day. Like, you know, either the old, the old lady at home's got onto you and you're a bit moody. It's, no, I'm not moody, Dad. I'm... I'm really fucking struggling. <laughs> like, I look back and I can almost laugh about it now, but at the time, like, I generally saw no outcome apart from I'm going to drink myself to death, and that's it. And which is why now I don't. I, I maybe have a unit every six months, if that, because I know I know what it's like, and I know how easy it can be become an addiction again, which links directly onto working in the gambling industry. I mean, certainly there your your use of prescription drugs and mm. alcohol there you know it's such a catalyst for a lot of people to use those as a distraction initially and then they become an addiction mm. because without them you feel like you can't yeah you can't live and you can't function props to you for for being honest there and explaining mm. that because it's not an easy thing to do but then that's that's part of your recovery to yeah to realize that and I suppose the you know the way I look at addiction and a lot of previous addicts or alcoholics say it's much like the roots of a tree the longer you do it the further those roots Mm -hmm. are and cutting that early because if you were doing that for many years I I can certainly say even withdrawal could potentially kill you let alone trying to just give it up so you know it's good but it's hard because with mental health as a journey I often think that you know I'm glad I'm at, I actually went through that journey to see that and it's hard but do you feel like you're glad you went through that journey to know what was going on to, to sort of stop it dead because otherwise it could have come when you were 40, 30, whatever it would yeah. be you know and, and almost be too late because you might have not had the right support. It's It's a difficult question to sort of give a definitive yes or no answer. I mean in a sense I'm glad I've been through it now because I can probably like yourself, I can now understand when I'm having low moments. Like, I now I now don't take any medication. Like I've completely come away from antidepressants for personal reasons. I mean, people that take it, that might work for you, but for me, it just didn't. And that's fine. I mean, we all take things differently. But for me, I can understand now that when I'm having, like, moments or, like, I don't, I don't want to use the phrase a depressive episode because I feel like that's the wrong kind of phrase to use it because it's not like I'm just having a bad day. It's I physically can't get up and I can, I now have a support network where I can say, look, can we go for a walk or can I ring you tonight or can you come over? And they're like that straight away. But in a sense of like, I'm glad it happened early, but I also don't wish that on my worst enemy because like, it's a very, very scary place to be not knowing if you're going to wake up tomorrow. Like there was times I went to, Cambridge and went up to the multi-story and I just stand looking over the edge and thinking well what about if I just pretend to slip and go over the edge like who's really going to miss me whereas in reality I have friends and families that would destroy their lives yeah like my older brother's just about to have his first kid so I'm going to be an uncle for the first time in like four weeks time well that little baby girl would then grow up without uncle Luke that's yeah. not it's, it's a very selfish way of looking at it but you've got to look at the bigger picture no matter how bad I've always felt now looking back I can sit and think well if I'd have done what I wanted to do how far does that ripple effect spread out 
Like you have friends, family, aunties, uncles, girlfriends, boyfriends, like colleagues. It's a it's a massive, massive effect. Yeah, and and you can feel you aren't important. But what I yeah. can certainly say in the situation of that, you know, advice I've been given and heard from people, even if you don't feel that you are important, you are important to others, and because of that, the need to stay around and yeah. be there for them takes over and it's always what's got me through certain situations where I felt worthless yeah. that it's worth it for them because my love for them friends family partners greatly exceeds my own sort of depravity thoughts of I've got no self-worth well I'm worth something to them so that's something worth yeah, sticking around I was just for about to say, you're, you're always going to be something to someone do you know what I mean whether it's family or friends you're always going to be something to someone like, yeah I'm, I'm always going to be known as the joker of the group to the guys at football or I'm always going to be known as you know when I when I worked in a different industry I was known as the guy with the tattoos so it's, exactly it's a silly way of looking at it but you think oh did you hear about the guy with the tattoos like and that's the whole workplace then and like, I don't ever now that I've been through what I've been through and knowing people that have experienced the worst of it like, I don't want to be that burden on somebody else because it's it's then, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously might not be here, but it's a bit like you, you always hear people say that they, like a parent should never bury their own child because you don't recover from stuff like that. No. Like losing someone that close to you, you'll never recover from it. No, certainly, I, you know, I definitely agree with that. And, and that's the, the driving force sometimes that often, yeah. see, you know, makes you seek help and, and, and seek that betterment for yourself. Um, going on to yourself working now within the gambling and betting industry, obviously it's a very, very odd industry that exists, uh, you know, in society, you know, so for yourself working, you know, it must be very present, you know, you notice members of the public that are clearly hiding their own issues, as you've described your own issues, that they're doing it through betting money, you know, could, do you have many examples when you really seen that, mate, don't put that bet on because it's you're not even thinking about the betting anymore. Yeah. You're just hiding from your own problems. I could legitimately give you an example for like every week I've ever worked on the bookies. The one that sticks out the most to me. Um, so just a, like a quick interlude to that. So a, about three years ago, the gambling commission actually changed the rules of the roulette wheels. So you can now only spin two pound at a time. Which doesn't sound that bad, but whereas before it was up to £100. So every time you click that button, you've lost £100. You've lost £100. And that it's, some games, it'd be every six seconds. So you can just imagine the sheer amount of money. And uh, so I opened the shop that I worked at at 8 o'clock in the morning. And uh, a customer come in and I knew, as soon as he walked in, I knew what state he was in. Because he was known as having having an issue with gambling. Um, we've spoken to him many times, look, you need to stop gambling you know you have a wife and kids you have a family you have a mortgage and by half past eight I had about seven and a half thousand pounds in the machine and he collected 45p and was like I want my money back and obviously company policy I can't just give you money back that's not how that works it's a transaction like you wouldn't go and buy a new car put a hundred thousand miles on it and then get your full money back it, I just said to him I was like mate there is nothing I can do I spoke to him every fight I said mate please like I can hear him putting 50 pound notes in like a kid would to the 2p machines on the seaside and it was it was really worrying and the more he's losing he's shaking the machines he's spitting at the machines he's headbutting the machines he's literally Toby punching himself in the forehead in anger 
and he comes up to me and says, please, like, I have a mortgage. And he's showing me a picture of his kids. Like, he's crying his eyes out. And I just, I said, look, I can't do anything. And I started crying myself because I could see the pain that the man was in. Like, he realised at that point that he's lost everything. Like, he has just spent every penny he's got. His cards have been declined. His credit card's maxed out. And, like, he's like, my wife's going to leave me. And I sort of phoned my aero team and I was like, what what do I do? And they're like, you just have to get him to leave ring the police then they'll come they they did turn up and they physically dragged him out of the shop because he would not leave until he got his money back and i phoned them back as i'm going home why i said that is that's different like that's really affected me and i took a week off work because i was scarred from it because he's he's a nice guy like he'd been in before like we'd have chats and stuff and over the period of about three or four months like his his spending habits increased and as we're supposed to, we sort of say, like, oh, you know, let's sort of say if it was you, Toby, like, you, you're right, you're spending a bit more than usual. You know, you don't normally do £200 singles on a horse, or, you know, you normally back the favourites. Why? Oh, because that one's going to win me more money. And then just one day, it was it was almost like a pressure cooker, and he'd just gone bang. And I see him about eight months later, he came in, and um, I'd seen that he'd banned himself, because you can do that. You can uh, go online and ban yourself from the bookies in the area. On. You, you can even now do it so you can go into your bank and ban your card from going depositing online which is tremendous by the way because if you're playing online you don't know how much money you're losing really because it's just a number on the board it's not physical cash whereas he was physically flicking in i'll leave that one running i'm going for a smoke he wasn't he was going to the cash point and withdrawing like another 500 pound out or he's going to the building society another thousand pound out and i sort of said to him i said i hope you're not betting anymore he said no he says that's stay away no i walked past him in tesco's and tapped him and I was like, almost just like, I'm glad you're alive sort of thing. Like, it sounds so silly, but you've never seen, like, anger and fear in a man's eyes like I saw that day. And it's, it stayed with me now. Like, I can still picture his face. I know exactly what he was wearing. I know the exact time. I know what I was wearing. I know what I was doing that the next day. Like, it really was a horrible, horrible experience. Yeah. It's tough because hearing that... You know, it often, you know, I just think how how the hell did a, a normal man get to that point in life, yeah. you know, and get to that point where he was so desperate um, for placing this bet and making some money back. It, it's so interesting to see that reaction, you know, and with the habits that we have and addictions, you know, it's, it's easy to fall down that pit of relying on that feeling, much like I'm sure he was, mm. but... Would you say in the experience of these people that you've met um, who have gambling addictions that there's an initial trauma that they've probably had over the years that has manifested to then create this, what they view as a safe space? So, I mean, before we started this podcast, I remember how I said to you, like, people fall into different categories. The worst category for me is the person that's won big early. So there was a story in the paper that I am... I had it on a podcast on the way home from a place one day and a gentleman had gambled three million pounds in like seven years because he put he went to a Cheltenham festival with his mates and I think there were seven races he picked seven horses out put a ten pound accumulator on and it won and he won it's like mad like a hundred and ninety five thousand pounds so to me and you if I turn up at your door tomorrow and say yeah I'll tell you there's near two hundred grand your first thought is not to go down the bookies because you've not done it but if you win that you think this is easy, why do we not all do it? And over the time, he was borrowing off parents, girlfriends, 
like uh, teachers at his kid's school. Like it got really bad. And so you have like that category or people that have like, oh, my wife left me or inheritance is another big one. Like, oh, my dad's my best mate and I, I lost him five years ago sort of thing. And, you know, he liked to punt on the horse on the Saturday or, oh, we used to go to the football together. And like, I feel like, so the one that really pisses me off is all these celebrities that you see, like, um, they're like, oh, I'm going to Cheltenham this weekend, or send your tips in, and or they'll have, like, because they're getting paid to go, they get given money to spend. It's not their money, so they don't care. But they put all these slips on, oh, like, beginner's luck, and people think, oh, if they can do that, like, oh, five to one, would five by hundred, that's 600 quid, that's easy. Yeah, the math makes sense, but you've, you've still got to win. And that's when it just becomes an addiction. And I, like I said, I see it every day. Like, I have people that come into my shop now that if they give me a slip of, like, 50 quid, I'm just going to look, I'll tear it, I'll literally tear up. What have you done that for? So I'm not any bet like that. You bet £5 max. £5, £5, £5. Why are you betting £50 for? That's 10 of your bets gone. And, like, you're an old retiree sort of thing. Like, you are, you don't work, so you have no income. So if you're going to start doing £50 bets every time, you're not going to win them much. You're going to lose money. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's so hard, you know, hearing those stories because obviously those people are in that situation mm. where they they can't see anything else apart from yeah. what, they, what they want and they only see the end game of winning money, but that rarely happens. You know, you often, the, the phrase that often comes is you never hear of a gambler's losses. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you, exactly. You, you never see that and that's so true. And it can often be said of like, you know, an alcoholic, you never see them, they'll never admit it themselves and they're always on their first drink or they're always... But they're yeah. not, you know, yeah, exactly. they, are, they are however many pints in already and what have you. And I think that's why it's so difficult with that with that side of things. With working in the betting shop, yeah. what, what things are out there to protect people? Because, I mean, you know, gambling can be a, a fun thing to do. Yeah, it can oh, be, absolutely. you know, like a fun pastime. And obviously, like you say, you go to the horse, you go football. It's, it's fun to have a punt on, as, yeah. as people would say, you know. What... What systems are in place to protect people? I mean, you've already mentioned about banning yourself, but yeah. also the bank protections. But what systems are in place to protect people? So a, a lot of it will come down to the individual themselves. Like, do they want to help themselves? Because you can only help people as much as they'll allow you. But any of like the high street competitors, so the ones that you can physically walk into a shop, so your William Hills, Labrooks, Corals, Betfred... Paddy Power, Jennings, they're ones that you can physically go in, see someone behind the counter and say, right, can I have this on this? You can go in there and you can say, look, I've got a gambling problem. And they'll either fill out a form with you, so that bans you from... So the one that we do, that bans you, you can have like four shops that you can ban yourself. So luckily in Cambridge, there's only four Betfreds. So if you come into me tomorrow and say, Luke, mate, I've got a serious gambling, I need to stop. We, we get you to send us a passport photo and fill this form out to say that I, Toby Peacock, want to bar myself. They do like a 12 month because it gives you a year. And then when you come back in, I'll, so if you come in before those 12 months, your picture's up on my like notice board on my screen. I'll look at it and say, mate, no, it's been out. I can turn the machines off at the wall. I can refuse it. I'll call the police if I have to. And usually you get three chances before you get an enforcement letter from the police, basically, to say, look, next time there will be charges brought against you, which is a, obviously it's a serious thing. There's that one, or you can go online. Uh, so it, the company we work with is, they are called Moses, but um, you can go on there and you can ban yourself like within an area. So you could do like 
East Anglia. And again, you upload these pictures and every shop will get an email so that you can tick off like a checklist of like, not that shop, buy myself in this one, this one, this one, this one, because I work in this one, I live here, get all gone. And they'll get an email saying, if you see this person, you'll immediately ask them to leave. Simple as that. And then you can now actually go into your bank because uh, a lot of people don't realise that if you gamble, so even if you do £10 a week, it affects your credit score. And people don't realise that. I didn't realise that until I went to go and get a credit card when I went on holiday last year and he sort of see my uniform and was like, do you gamble online? I was like, I have done. And he was like, that'll go against your credit score. And I was like, what, £5 a week, but I can go and blow £100 in a pub? And he said, yes, it will. And I was like, wow. And obviously they don't realise that. So I think that's a, a sneaky part of it that they'll, right, I'm clean now, like no more gamble. I'm going to go and apply for a mortgage. Oh, you've got a really bad credit score. Well, hang on, I've never missed a bill in my life. Yeah, but you have spent £30,000 gambling in the last five years. Oh, okay. So there's that one. So you just go into the bank and say, look, all these places are bad for me. Can you put a block on my card? And they can do it. Same as like, it's almost like um, like parental locks. Yeah, parental control. Yeah, yeah Like definitely. you have on the internet and stuff like that. So there are there are ways of doing it. And obviously you can, you can go to like um, Gamblers Anonymous and stuff like that. And you can go and listen to these horrible stories that will make you sit and think like, wow, like I have my wife and children at home or my husband and children at home. Do I really want to do this then? Because the answer is always going to be no. No, and I think with the support available, you know, it shows people as well that when when they're on that path to getting better and dealing with addiction, yeah, um, that often their families will convince them to do these various things yeah. and it's also reassuring because like I say that the gambling in- industry is such a large industry and it is it can be fun you know and they always say when the the fun stops stop and, and yeah, fine that's, that's a massive true. slogan of ours they have like uh, gambling awareness week in November as well and like you go into a shop and they've got game care leaflets which provide you of all the information and who you can talk to and almost like a Samaritan's hotline for gambling addiction there's definitely things out there and it's getting better like they're now um, so a big one in the last year is affordability checks, which for the average public is great. And this is going to make me sound like an absolute arsehole, by the way. But for us, it's really bad because it affects our business. And for the listeners out there, I hold no, that's not me at all. I'm on the other guy's side. <laughs> yeah. But basically, it's split into four stages. And it's if you lose £500 in a day, the next time you come in, I'll sort of sit and say to you, look, I've been asked to ask you a few questions. Are you okay to gamble? Like, are you okay financially? And then I think it's £3,000 in a month. This is loss. So even if you've won 5000 and given 4000 back, you're a £1,000 up, but to us, you've just lost four grand. which whichever side you look at it can be a good or a bad thing. And then it goes up to £15,000 in a year staked. And at that point, until you tell us where you live what you do for a job, how much money you earn for the year, we will not allow us to take your bets. Simple as that. Which is good, really, because with your profession, it, it sort of shows that it's not just a, a money-grabbing you know, profession. It is, mm. You've got things in pra- place to protect people. And, yeah. that, and, and that is the, the, I say the be-all and end-all, but it is. like you're, you're still, you're trying to treat it as a business, but equally you do have things in place to protect people. It's no different to, it wouldn't be fair as you as an individual to turn around and say that it contributes to some person's addiction because Mm. you could say that about pubs. You could say that about restaurants because they don't know who the person walking through that door is. You know, 
what does it matter if just because they're the stereotypical places doesn't mean that it's not the you know where people go because they will find something new but you're just trying to push people in that direction to get help I mean, and take, you know take alcohol for example how many pubs do you find in london if you're bound from one you, just, you walk 20 yards on the road you're another one you've got to do a lot of drinking to be barred from every pub in London. Yeah, yeah, that, You ain't going to survive that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't laugh, but do you know what I mean? There's just no way you're going to be known in every single pub. And it's the same for bookies, which is why these schemes available are a massive help. And they are slowly trying to do things because, I mean, a couple of years ago, some firms got into a lot of trouble for allowing people to gamble when they shouldn't be. But it, it's, just, it's from a business perspective, it's a strange one because without knowing where you're getting your money from, like, I can't... So, obviously, you own, own a business. So, I, I don't know how much money you've overturned in the last year. You could have you could have turned over 20 quid profit or 20 million profit without us knowing that, which is why that last bit is really good. But, so, personally, the shop I work at, we've lost a couple of our biggest customers because they turned around, took one look at the letter and went, I'm not telling you what I do for a job. And I openly say, like, I don't want you to. If that's going to stop you gambling, don't tell me because, like... Until you tell me, I'm not. I'm not allowed to take your bet. If I do, I get the sack. I don't want really to get the sack. I've got bills to pay. But it's so there are pros and cons to it, and I've actually had a, a lot of discussions with my area line manager about like we actually just need to do more because it's okay physically. You know, I can I can go on my computer a bit and right. This is Toby's bet. He's now done three today, and he's three hundred pound. Right, he's now done four. He's five, right. That's gonna flag tomorrow. But if you go on the um, sports betting terminals, which have all your football, your cricket, you know, all the sports ones, that doesn't get regulated. So I've sort of said, why am I regulating one? But then he's doing it on there anyway. And a lot of the time, you can do both. On you can bet on the horses on both. So if I to, realistically, if I wanted to keep your business, I'd just say to Toby, just stick on the machine. Like if you want to gamble, but then I'm obviously then enabling you and your your addiction. Whereas in reality, I really should be saying, look, I don't think that's a very, very good idea. I feel like you should go and talk to someone. Yeah, and I think that's where the human aspect comes through. And, yeah. and naturally, like a, a pub owner, you know, you know, you get a lot of people, bar flies, they would be called, that mm. are in there at half four when they open. Yeah. And they stay there till 10 o'clock because, you know... That that's yeah, what they at, do. At what and, point does you know, your um, like moral compass come into it? Yeah, he's exactly. good for business, but he literally is drinking himself to death. Yeah. At what point does it now become right? He's now not just harmless. He's not harmless, Joe. At the end of the bar, he's now right. He's becoming a problem. Yeah, and it's dangerous for him. And obviously, like you say, morally, people can't deal with that. Mm. And I think that's why it's a tough industry because you can look at gambling in whatever way you want. It, it, it's it's still an industry, and it's yeah. still. Um, it it can like we've said before, it can be fun and it can be yeah. a, a good task for people to do, and it generates a lot of revenue. Yeah. Um. But that's much like any industry out there, you know. Um, unfortunately, there are pros and cons, but you have the moral compass there to to interject when you feel that there's a problem, you know. Um. Finally, with you know the gambling industry. Would you say, apart from you know your individual schemes mm-hmm. of um, where you've said there's like gambling aware and there's mm-hmm. various banks um, to ban yourself as well from apps and websites, what available support would you say is there in regards to the general idea of addiction and gambling? Was there anything with yourself, obviously, when you sought help that yeah. really helped you, you know, go through that? Uh, personally, I've it's a strange one because having the 
quote unquote addiction to what I had before. I've never felt that with gambling, but I think that's because I've I've seen it firsthand. But I know, for example, like I don't know if you follow Premier League football, but I think like as of twenty twenty four, like betting sponsors are going to be banned. Well, think how many Premier League teams have a betting sponsor. Do you know what I mean? Like it's glorified. You see all the TV adverts of Bet Three Six Five. Oh. You know, you put 20 quid on this, you can win three grand just on a few corners. Oh, that's wicked. It is if it wins. But again, how many times am I betting 20 quid to win this 3,000? If I'm betting 5,000 to win 3,000, I'm a £2,000 loss. It doesn't make sense. So I feel like with, like for example, banning um, betting sponsors and the government doing these affordability, it is now starting to realise that it's becoming a massive problem. Because another, another thing that we have to look at is... Um, like keeping crime out of it as well so i mean i don't know if if you've ever experienced this but like all they'll do is they'll go into a bookies put it in the machine do a couple of spins i can have the back of my card please mate well you've now got clean money do you know i mean whereas we we're now not allowed to do that if you pay on card it goes back to card if you pay in cash it goes you have to give it even if i have to go out there and physically empty the machine i have to say to you look you have to come back tomorrow because I haven't got the cash. I'm going to have to go and withdraw the money from the bank. Like, I've got to go and cash a check-in tomorrow because I don't have the £8,000 that you want. Yeah, so you're trying to stop as yeah, well. Yeah, there, there definitely you know. is a lot of things being done to it. And for me, this is this has come five years too late. Like, I know I work in the gambling industry, but honestly, Toby, I actually despise it sometimes. The only reason I'm still here is because it pays my bills and this is my comfort zone. It'd be a bit like me saying to you, right, forget what you're doing now, you're going to go work in a library. Well, this is what you do. This is all you know. Do you know what I mean, I've worked within the industry for nearly five years now. I've had other jobs in between, but I've always found myself coming back because I, I generally, on a day-to-day basis, I enjoy working there because the general punters, people, like I've, I could probably name you five customers that will be in my shop tomorrow, and every all five of them, they'll get their coffee. You know, one of them has his sandwiches. I've got this one has his special biscuits. This one wants to know what what football on the weekend and is this person playing. They'll spend five pound a day, ten pound a day. One of them spends a bit more because he's got a bit more money, but he always, he knows his limit. He comes in with a, with his cash. Once that cash is gone, he goes. Simple as that. And they're the nice ones. You get to know them. It's a bit like if you have repeat customers, you get to know them on a personal level. Like I've got a few of their numbers. I've I bought a cricket bat off one of them. They're lovely. It's the other ones that have the issues that not only are affecting them, but they're affecting the other people as well. Because they see it and think, well, oh, maybe this gambling malarkey is not for me anymore. So the more the government especially do to make it regulated and limit the damage it can do, the better for me. No, exactly. And, and, and like you say, it's good that like your work is enforcing that and the industry in general is enforcing more things to offer that support. Um, finally, my, my last question would be in regards to your past experiences with your unhealthy habits and addictions mm-hmm. for alcoholism and and prescription drugs what would you say to those people who before you addressed your problem would look at a bad instance and find themselves trying to react in a negative way so for example getting fired from a job and thinking do you know what I'm going to go out tonight and be drunk mm. with that instant thought of I'm going to dismiss it yeah. by doing something not reckless but immediately distracting what would your advice be for anyone who is trying to do something negative initially to a bad situation i think for me it comes down to the future so you might 
have one silly mistake. So I could say, oh, do you know what? I've had an absolute terrible day. I'm going to go and sink 10 bikes. I'm going to drive home. Well, on my drive home, if I hit someone and kill them and I'm drunk driving, I'm going to prison. Like, I think if you're going out with the intention of a negative thought or going to do something reckless, you've got to think about the effects. It might seem a really good idea to go and have a few pints with the boys down the local but why are you driving home? You know you're over the limit. Why you like? I know, for example, some people when it comes to alcohol, they tend to ring up certain people and get certain powders in a little bag that come with it. Why do you think that's a good idea? Like, I feel I feel like you need to evaluate it. And if you feel like it's a problem, you need to speak to someone about it because the problem will only get bigger until you deal with it. It's a bit like if you left, and if you left a mark on your body for six months, it will go away. Well, that's now infected. Like it. It's the worst. The longer you leave things, the worse it can be. I feel like the expression "nip it in the bud." Like if you feel like you are struggling with anything, whether it be addiction, whether it be you feel like you're having like like with your panic attacks. I can personally say I've never had a panic attack, but I feel like if I did have one, knowing what I know now, I would immediately say, "Right, something in my life is not adding up. I need to fix this because I don't want this feeling ever again." Like you said, yours got worse and worse and worse. If you'd have known about it in the start, would you have allowed it to get worse and worse or would you have done something proactive about it rather than negative? And I feel like that's what people miss to begin with, the the proactive side of things. Like for me personally now, like yourself, sport's a massive part of my life. In the summer, you'll find me at work, on the cricket field, on a football pitch, on a golf course, nothing else. Like I won't sit inside. In the winter, I'll go out for a walk, wrap up warm. I'll go and play football. I'll... You know, I'll still go and play golf, but I'll just get a bit cold. I know now what I need to do to clear my mental state if I'm having a, a like a bad a bad day, doing something that I enjoy to make myself happy. For some people, it can it can be as simple as reading a book or you know having a having a nice hot bath. If you find something that helps you, please do it because, like I said before, you are something to someone always, and no one ever wants that phone call. No, exactly that. And I 100% agree that in those instances, you've got to react proactively and and positively as you can. There's nothing wrong with accepting a bad situation, but doesn't mean that you have to react with another bad situation. So I totally agree there. Luke, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your own personal stories. It's been really good to chat to you today. So thank you once again for, for being here and joining no, me. Thank you very much for having me on. Like I said, like, it's it's a pleasure. I feel like people need to hear personal stories because people could be going into the bookies at the weekend and not thinking nothing of it. They might now sit and hear this and think, well, actually, I've spent a lot of money. So if, even if I've helped one listener, like that's I've done my job then, really. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I love the platform you're giving it and I love the fact that you're enabling in your industry is specifically that it's you're now allowed to talk about these sort of things i think what you're doing is brilliant mate so i'm ever so happy to come on luke you're very kind thank you very much cheers mate an insight there to many things depression addiction distraction habits and gambling and how to seek help an interesting few points on review of luke's path of mental health really common with depression, to have a short fuse and irritability, it's certainly something that's really common with people in those situations where they're often frustrated with their own thought processes and don't really know how to react, that they're very quick to anger. On the back of that, also the emotions there 
are common to be almost hot and cold in certain situations where you can find yourself being really happy and equally just as low and sad um, in, in the next moment. When the habits of addiction, alcoholism started, it's good that almost his internal thoughts almost made him self-aware that his destructive route wasn't for him and that something needed to change. Often I'd see that as almost your mind's protective system kicking in and it's, it's trying to keep you alive or what's left alive and that almost survival instinct within you that you know this isn't the path for you. A few sad realities of the gaming industry and what gambling can do. As previously mentioned, it's a controversial industry that some people don't agree with, but it is an industry and it provides jobs for people to earn a living. Those individuals naturally won't be the ones responsible for the way that the gambling industry works or has been created within society. Finally, to wrap this episode up, I'd like to thank you all who have listened to season one and also to those who have featured. We've had some great guests talking about their own experiences and showing the backgrounds of the industries that also want change with mental health. Series 2 is coming and will be following in the short future. As always, we have those guests lined up ready to talk about these great and important topics. Please get in touch via our socials to keep up to date with the podcast. Thank you again for listening and the continued support around the world in all the countries that I can see it's being listened in. Thank you and I look forward to welcoming you to Series 2 soon.